Rabbi Moses saw in 1267 what Twain in 1867 had failed to discern, which was that the land was looking forward to and yearning for the return of the Jews. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 40, Mark Twain, Leviticus and the Holy Land. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It was in 1867 that a young aspiring writer by the name of Samuel Clemens convinced a California newspaper to fund his trip on the Quaker City, which was a luxury cruise ship bearing devout American Christians to the Holy Land. Clemens's dispatches describing his journey, became Innocence Abroad, the book that made his career, the best-selling book in his lifetime, helping to launch the fame of the author forever known as Mark Twain. Yet, perhaps only religious Jews understand that Twain's travel memoir is truly appreciated when it is taken in tandem with the reflections of a medieval Sephardic sage who exactly 600 years before made the same journey, saw what Twain saw, and had an entirely other reaction, one which has been vindicated by Jewish history today. Leviticus draws to a close with a discussion of the rewards that will be bestowed upon Israel if it obeys God's laws, if it maintains a loyalty to the covenant. Then Israel's enemies would be defeated, and Israel's land would flourish. Leviticus 26.4 Then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land. And ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. But, the Almighty continues, If ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. Then, verse 17 tells us, I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. If the covenant is broken, then both the people and the land, for Leviticus, will know punishment. Egregious sin will bring about the destruction of the sanctuaries, a desolation of the soil, and the exile of Israel itself. Verse 31. And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. And I will bring the land unto desolation. And your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. This is indeed a terrifying description. And for Jewish tradition, these prophecies were fulfilled in the exiles experienced by the Jewish people in the several destructions of Jerusalem and of the land. So scary are these verses, known to Jews as the tochacha, the rebuke, that to this day they are read from the Torah scroll in synagogue, sotovoce. And yet, the Jewish exegetes see in this last verse not only promise of destruction, but also a source of consolation. The destruction of the land, we are told, will astonish the nations. What this means for some commentators is that even as the empires of the ages vie over the Holy Land, seek to conquer and control it, the agricultural abundance of the area known as the land of milk and honey will for these conquerors be anything but. 
because the land will lie fallow in wait for the Jews to return to it. And thus it was that in the 19th century, Samuel Clemens arrived in the Middle East. He had not read Jewish commentaries on Leviticus, but he knew the Bible. And his biting wit addresses what was for him the anticlimactic experience of the Holy Land. In the north, which is always the most fertile area of the land of Israel, Twain saw here and there a little evidence of agriculture, what he calls at most, quote, an acre or two of rich soil studied with last season's dead corn stalks, end quote. Because of the role that it plays in Christian scripture, many of Twain's fellow travelers longed to stand at the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and yet Twain himself was astonished at how pathetic a sea it seemed. He contrasted it to Lake Tahoe, where one stands alone in awe at its beauty. As he puts it, at Tahoe, quote, it is solitude for birds and squirrels on the shore and fishes in the water are all the creatures that are near to make it otherwise. But it is not the sort of solitude to make one dreary. Come to Galilee for that. If these unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness that never, never do shake the glare from their harsh outlines and fade and faint into vague perspective, that melancholy ruin of Capernaum, this stupid village of Tiberias, slumbering under its six funereal plumes of palms, end quote. Twain concludes of the Sea of Galilee that it is a, quote, solemn, sailless, tintless lake, reposing within its rim of yellow hills and low, steep banks, end quote. This, then, is the Galilee, where there were at least some sign of greenery and growth here and there. But Twain also experienced what is described in Leviticus about the destruction of the sacred cities of the Holy Land. And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And thus it was, when Twain came to Jerusalem, he saw nothing of the famed beauty described in the Bible. He writes, quote, We pressed on toward the goal of our crusade, renowned Jerusalem. The further we went, the hotter the sun got, and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There could not have been more fragments of stone strewn broadcast over this part of the world if every ten square feet of the land had been occupied by a separate and distinct stonecutter's establishment for an age. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. No landscape exists that is more tiresome to the eye than that which bounds the approaches to Jerusalem." Thus did the book Innocence Abroad describe the desolation of the Holy Land. And though the book is filled with cynicism at popular religion, Twain does, in his final chapter about the land, reference the possibility that all this has occurred in fulfillment of biblical decree. The chapter begins with these words, quote, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the speak of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. And here is how Twain concludes the chapter. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workaday world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is dreamland. End quote. But, as Rabbi Moshe Tarragon of Yeshivat Haratzion and others have noted, the author of Innocence Abroad has a distinguished predecessor. Exactly 600 years before, 
one of the most important rabbis in Jewish history, arrived in the Holy Land and saw exactly what Twain saw, but interpreted it differently. Moses ben Nachman, known as Nachmanides or Ramban, famed leader of the Jewish community in Girona, was forced by the king of Aragon to publicly defend Judaism against the attacks of a Jewish apostate. As a result, he was ultimately convicted of attacks on Christianity and sent into exile. In 1267, he arrived in a Jerusalem that was devoid of Jews. In a letter to his son, Nachmanides describes the barrenness of the land of Israel as ordained by God, yet he insists that in the midst of our mourning, we mark a miracle. He argues that from the beginning of the exile, the land has refused to illustrate its inherent potential for abundance and rejected the attempts of its conquerors to cultivate it because the land of Israel is mourning for the absence of the Jews. Here is what he wrote to his son, and this is my translation from the Hebrew. And what shall I tell you about the land? For enormous is its abandonment and great its desolation. Nachmanides then notes what Twain had sensed as a paradox, that the land grows more barren as one approaches Jerusalem. For Maimonides, this is actually proof of his thesis. In Hebrew, The general principle of the matter is, whatever is holier than its counterpart is more destroyed than its counterpart. Nachmanides continues by writing, Jerusalem is more destroyed than anywhere else, and Judea is more destroyed than the Galilee. End quote. Whereas Samuel Clemens could only see the destruction, Rabbi Moses saw in 1267 what Twain in 1867 had failed to discern, which was that the land was looking forward to and yearning for the return of the Jews. Clemens could never have imagined that exactly 100 years after he visited Jerusalem in 1867, Jewish soldiers would stand there in 1967 claiming the ancient city of Jerusalem as the capital of a flourishing Jewish state. Credit for this wondrous event lies in part with a man who lived hundreds of years before, with Nachmanides, whose own arrival marked the beginning of a 600-year Jewish presence in the sacred city. As Nachmanides further writes to his son, quote, We have inspired ourselves and found a restored house built with pillars of marble and a beautiful dome, and we took it as a synagogue, for the city is ownerless, and all who wish to take possession of a ruin can do so. And we have volunteered to fix this house, and we have already begun its restoration, and sent to the city of Shechem to bring Torah scrolls, which were originally from Jerusalem." It's a striking scene, ladies and gentlemen. Let us imagine it in our mind. Jerusalem destroyed in the rubble of the wars that have centered upon it between the Christian and Muslim world a Jerusalem devoid of Jews. Yet now a rabbi comes and suddenly repairs the rubble and creates a small synagogue because he believes that in the dust and destruction holiness remains. Nachmanides actions recall another great Sephardic sage who himself was similarly inclined, Judah Halevi, who concluded his great work, the Kuzari, with the hero of the tale, the rabbi, leaving his partner in conversation, the king of Khazars and journeying for the Holy Land, explaining to the king that he was motivated by the belief 
that, quote, Jerusalem can only be rebuilt when Israel yearns for it to such an extent that they embrace her stones and dust, end quote. And while the original site of Nachmanides prayer in Jerusalem is not fully certain, to this day there is a synagogue there in his name. There is a place of prayer which is founded by the exiled rabbi who believed that if Jews would return to Jerusalem, Jerusalem would one day return to the Jews. And so it has come to pass, as predicted in the Bible. The largely terrifying tocha comes to an end with an astonishing assurance. The frightening verses of our chapter conclude with an awe-inspiring guarantee of God that no matter how long the exile, no matter how far the Jewish people wanders from the Holy Land, the covenant with Abraham is never, ever abrogated, and the ultimate return to the land of Israel will ultimately occur. Verse 44 of our chapter gives us what is, to my mind, one of the most incredibly beautiful verses in the Torah. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Today, throughout the Holy Land, one sees not desolation but growth. Greenery, even in the desert. Vegetation, adorning the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. The Jews have returned to the land, and the land has returned to the Jews. Twain had argued that the Holy Land was no more of this workaday world, that it was, as he put it, sacred only to poetry and tradition. The land of Israel today is, of course, still sacred to tradition, but it is also very much a part of this workaday world. Indeed, as Yossi Siegel documented in his book, Let There Be Water, Israel is today the agricultural inspiration of the world. Twain derided the Sea of Galilee and lauded Lake Tahoe. Today it is California, on whose border Tahoe sits, that seeks Israeli advice for its own irrigation. To travel in Israel today, to drink wine from the Galilee in the north, and to eat fruit from the south that is grown in what is purportedly a desert, is to think of the Almighty's promise one which follows a doom that is threatened upon the land with the promise of its ultimate redemption. As I wrote in commentary, Twain and Nachmanides are an unlikely pair, yet the commonalities and differences in their reflections remind us that history is full of surprises and that somehow its greatest twists and turns involve the Jews. More than 30 years after publishing his Innocence Abroad, the man who emerged from relative obscurity to publish the tale of his tour and become the most famous author in America, penned an essay called Concerning the Jews. In it, he pondered the mysterious endurance of the Jewish people. Twain wrote, quote, All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? End quote. The ultimate answer is perhaps provided in our passage. As this chapter in Leviticus, known as the Tochacha, is read in synagogue, the voice of the reader remains, for the most part, low. But suddenly, in its more positive places, the voice becomes raised. One of those exquisite examples is verse 42. 
Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. The truth of this verse is verified by our own age. And in the midst of the murmuring of the terrifying Tochacha, these words sung aloud in synagogue become a clarion call. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.